Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 11th, 2019, and this is episode 2393 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday, that means it's a listener feedback show. This is where you guys send me email. You send that email to jack at com. And in the subject line, you need to put the, the initials TSPC, like it's a word, all capital TSPC, and then question for Jack, Jack, you're a jerk, Jack, you're a dummy, whatever you want to put it. It doesn't matter. The big thing is that TSPC will make it where if you go into the spam box or get filtered by one of my other rules, eventually I'll get off my butt and I'll dig it out of there and I'll find it and I'll see it and I'll review it. The next thing, bottom line, upfront format. This is the most important thing you can do to improve your chances to get on the air. You make your statement or you ask your question in one to two sentences maximum. Trust me, it can be done. Then if there's a link or something, you give me that. Then you give me the details and use some return strokes in your... If you send me a five-paragraph text jumble with no paragraph breaks in it, I can't read it. My, my mind will not let... I don't understand people that read that way. You gotta put some paragraph breaks in if you want me to read your details. You do that, and there's a good chance that you'll get on the air. Here's what we got today. Pretty good lineup for you. The newspaper is dying. We all know that, you know, the newspapers are dying, but you won't believe the fear the establishment is stoking about it as though the world might end because the newspapers die. Uh, more on glyphosate in your food supply and what you can do about it. I have a segment I'm calling Of Puppies. Next Door Dogs, Litter Mates, and Puppy Mamas. Um, next up, more on the death of retail, and even the dollar stores are in deep shit. Yep, we're going to talk about that and why that's only logical uh, that that would be the case. And what it's going to take to be successful is any sort of retail establishment in any industry um, at all going into the future. And uh, I'll even refer to a really cool video by a dude named Corey at Aquarium Co-op. He's talking about retail fish stores. And there's a lot of wisdom in his, like, one-hour video rant on it. And uh, I'll put a link to that in today's story as well. I actually plan on doing a follow-up video for that on YouTube, like a response video, even though those aren't a thing on YouTube anymore. But we'll, we'll talk about it for a little bit here today. Um, another attempt to prop up the education system, tax deduction for student debt. This is something that has overwhelming support. I'll tell you why it probably doesn't mean that much for the people that need it the most anyway. <laughs> okay? Um, what, what do we learn from assaults on people wearing MAGA hats, Make America Great Again hats, and, and where is that going to lead eventually? Um, another segment called Of Inherited Guns and Gun Registration and Many Misunderstandings. More ideas on a first gun for young shooters and no to low-maintenance greens for the garden, specifically for making smoothies. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to get to all of this and more in just a minute. I just wanted to point something out today. When you were listening to that lineup of topics, if you were thinking, gee, I really wish Jack would talk about X or Y or Z more, right? Okay, get on your computer, <laughs> open up your email program, 
Put in the two line, Jack, at the survivalpodcast.com. Put TSBC in the subject line. Bottom line up front. And you send me what you want me to talk about. The more variety I get, the more variety I can talk about. All right. So before we dig into this today, let's go ahead and remind you of our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, the company I say that does what they say and says what they do, readymaderesources.com. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. They have it all from the practical to the tactical to the guns to gardens and everything in between. Such a loyal sponsor. Uh, Ready-made resources, Safe Castle Royal, and a couple other sponsors came on board in the first couple months I took sponsors. That was That's now officially 10 years. 10 years sponsoring this show. So, guys, look, when you need something like the practical, the tactical, the preppy stuff, right, instead of going to some site like Emergency uh, Essentials or whatever that advertises all over the place with catalogs, go to the company that has the same stuff that supported the show that you love for 10 Flipping years. The company that does what it says and says what it does, readymaderesources.com. Next up, another long-term supporter. Not quite 10 years, but I'd say like nine. Knifekits.com, man. Knifekits.com is a great website. And most people don't know this. I don't talk about it much more because we don't bring new sponsors on very often because they're so loyal. When sponsors, when I first started taking sponsors, I created a listener ad council out of my moderators on our old school forum. And basically it was like, here's 48 hours, tear them to shreds, find out any dirt on them, find out anything, any reason we shouldn't take them. And even though they're begging me to be on the show, even though I have a check in their hand, I cannot take them if two or more of you say no. And so when they checked on Knife Kits, like, it wasn't just they didn't find anything bad. All they found was glowing reviews on all the blade forms and stuff like that. Again, been with us a long time. Make building knives easy. It could be a hobby. It could be just something you do for a project or two, something cool to do with the kids. It can become a part-time income. It can become a full-time income. You never know where you'll end up, but a great place to start, knifekits.com. And remember, they do a discount for members of the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and uh, dig into this. I want to I want to start out with this uh, lead story I have for you today about the newspapers dying. This is a really short article on um, – it's actually on Business Insider, but it was put out by AP, just run syndicated. And since it's so short, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you, and I'm going to tell you why I think the establishment's lost their minds yet again. When a newspaper closes, one of the biggest losses for the community is the inability to watchdog the actions of local government. Newspapers typically have played the lead role in their communities in holding local officials accountable. That includes filing requests to get public records or even filling lawsuits to promote transparency. The function is in danger of being lost in many communities across the United States. Over the past 15 years, more than 1,400 towns and cities have lost a newspaper. That often means they have no con consistent news coverage of what the local governments are doing. Penelope Muse Abernathy, a University of North Carolina professor who studies news industry trends, says a lost newspaper often means no one is bringing transparency to decisions that affect the public. Now, I got to say, first of all, when I have about poorly written stuff, I, I try not to be too hard on it because I'm not a writer. I can actually write really well when I choose to, but in the in, in in general, I just blow out whatever thoughts need to be put out there to get it done. So I am not like a, like you know I'm not like a Dan Brown type writer or something like that. But this is incredibly poorly written because it basically just repeats the same fact over and over and over again, even though it is only five paragraphs long. And really, when I look at the structure, it should have been maybe four, right? So it just Uh, when you don't have a newspaper, no one watches the local government. When you don't have a newspaper, no one watches the local government. Do you think maybe this is why people are tired of journalists? 
So like you have this this thing that you have no real supporting evidence for other than conjecture that obviously this must be the case. So instead of like saying, look, here's an example of a place where the community, if they had known, would have reigned in their local government. And this was a newspaper that had a track record of that, but this newspaper disappeared two years ago, and this substantiates the case that we're making to you. See, that would be investigative journalism, the very thing that you're decrying doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't not exist anymore because papers are folding their folding up permanently. It doesn't exist because you journalists stopped doing it. The journalism, at least the mainstream version of journalism, is dying because people are bored. They're bored with your bullshit, they do not trust you, and they think you're partisan, because you are. I will say that back in the day, there was always some level of bias in journalism. But in the end, journalists from the local to the national did mostly do their jobs. They certainly weren't friendly to Reagan, and they certainly tried to do whatever they could to find something to undermine Reagan, for instance, because journalists have been kind of beholden to the left since back before Carter, right? Back before Nixon. Uh, that's kind of when they made the switch there. And uh, But they did do their job. And if they found something that would would you know disprove something, they would bring it forward. Or if they found something that wasn't good about the other side, they would bring it forward. And they did a pretty good job with it. It was pretty much dead already, like, 11 years ago when I started this show. It was dead and dying. At this point, it is not only dead, it has been embalmed, and it has been buried. And I'm talking about journalistic integrity. The only journalistic integrity that exists anymore is truly an alternative media, and it is only the people in alternative media who actually do have bias but clearly state it. That's, that's where the only integrity is. Look, I am a right-wing nut, but I am reporting things as I see them, and this is what I see. Look, I'm a left-wing nut, and I am reporting things as I... That's like the only place you get any journalistic integrity. And what I have found is even in those sources, there are some of them who will say, and I got it wrong, and then you actually have journalistic integrity. But no, now we have major publications... Printing something as though it's fact when it's completely suspicion, later having it disproven, and printing you know a, a, a retraction so small you need a freaking jeweler's lens to read it, and they don't and because it's all electronic now they don't even put out a new article that says hey back two months ago we screwed this up and we'd like to clear the air now no they go back to that article and append a little tiny thing down at the bottom of it, and that's another reason that papers are folding it's because. It's easier to hide your mistakes when you do it electronically. Sure, it's searchable and everybody can go find it, but who really looks it up once everybody knows it's true? Right? This is the thing. Today, if you want to know what's going on in your local government, you and some of your fellow citizens need to pay attention and go do the work for yourself, which means you might actually get the truth. Public information requests are not hard to submit. And the reality is the government doesn't give a shit anymore anyway. Right, like they've ridden this this horse of the media into the ground, and they've got as much propaganda out of it as they can, and they've given up now, and they just do whatever the hell they want. And the other side of this is just the technology. Why would anybody want to get off their ass and go down to a local store and pay fifty cents for a very thin paper that doesn't even have fifty cents worth of coupons in it anymore? 
to read about shit that they mostly don't care about. Because uh, this whole concept that like these were the guardians of the local galaxies or something, right? It's just stupid because I remember when I was a kid, and, and my grandparents all used to read the local paper. Oh, they all read. I read a Pottsville Republican. Oh, what's going on? I don't know. And I asked my dad, I think, why, why do they read? He said they're nosy. Old people are nosy. They want to know what's going on. It's just like he said he used to call it the nosy paper instead of the newspaper, right? And he never read the paper. But then I started paying attention. Well, like, what are they reading? They were reading like the obituaries, right? The police blotter. They weren't worried about whether the mayor of freaking Minersville was corrupt. They knew the mayor of Minersville was corrupt, right? But he was corrupt onto their side. That's why they voted for him. That's why I say the worst government is the most local. Because the only thing that smaller governments can do in a Republican system of government, that's not Republican Party for those with bias in their heads, our government is a republic, therefore we have a Republican system of government. And it is mandated that the states maintain a Republican system within their state organization. In a republic, the larger body of government always overrules the lower body as long as everything is within the constitution of the republic itself. What does that mean? That means that the only thing your local government can do when it comes to legislation is further restrict your liberty. All your town can do is add another law on top of the, the, the federal, county, and state laws that you already have. That's it. That's all they can do. Now, I get local police departments don't necessarily add those laws, and many of them actually, some little governments don't have a lot of new laws. And what the police are actually enforcing is the county and the state and local. A lot of little cities say basically, if it's against county law, it's also against city law. I, I get that it's not always the case, because somebody wrote me on this. Like, it's not always the case that they're adding legislation. But in the end, they exist for a purpose, to enforce legislation. That's one side of it. And to write legislation, to enact legislation, the only legislation they can enact is more restriction on your freedom. So this is all a non, non-starter. This is all just like somebody at AP is like, I'm going to put something out and write the same thing like 47 times, and maybe somebody will syndicate it, and Business Insider dead. The reality is what you want to know today can be found very, very quickly if you use this magical thing called the Internet, which is the real reason newspapers are crashing and burning. It's not just a lack of journalistic integrity. Why, why cut down trees, chop them up into little pieces to make shitty paper, to print in black and white the information that you can gain in seconds on your tablet, your phone, your computer? It just doesn't make any sense. I would actually be very disturbed if newspapers weren't crumbling right now. And then... You could see the value of the ones, the big newspapers, what they really bring in value by their advertisements. They have the same crappy advertisements that like tabloid websites have. Have you noticed that? Dancing clowns telling you to refinance your mortgage, do this so that you don't get cancer. It's all bullshit. When you have people like the New York Slimes and the Washington Compost using like basically fish bait virus planning companies to sell advertising, then you know their value's dead. They're dead. And it's not too soon either. I wish it had been a while ago. Because this goes right into our second story today. So I'm on a little website here called herbsinfo.com. Herbs-info.com. And the information they're presenting comes from the FDA. Now, this should be 
the type of information that newspapers, if they were doing their job, would be bringing to the public. It is how much glyphosate is in your food. Now, again, I want to point out, this is publicly available information that we're supposed to be terrorized that the local newspapers won't go get for us anymore. Now, of course, they were talking about local government, but I mean, you know, you do buy your goldfish crackers and your Honey Nut Cheerios and your Tricks and your Annie's Cookies and your Ritz Crackers and your Oreo Double Stuff Goldens. You do buy all of that down at the local grocery, you know, right down the road from where your old local newspaper is that isn't anymore. So if you were eating something out of all these local businesses that was highly toxic to your body, right, you would, you would think that that would be something worth investigating and doing a public records request for that we could rely on, you know, your local newspaper or your, you know, your big newspapers, right? Come on, right? They're the guardians of, they're protecting you. That's so bad they're gone. Okay. Let me read some of this shit to you. Um, I'm going to go to the PepsiCo products because they're kind of the worst of the bunch. <laughs> you would think that Stacy's Simply Naked Pita Chips sounds pretty healthy. 812 parts per billion of glyphosate, which is Roundup. Larry's Kettle Cooked Potato Chips, 452. This is FDA publicly available information that you know the New York Times doesn't care to go get for you. Doritos Cool Ranch. 481 parts per billion. Fritos, 174 parts per billion. Um, Little Debbie's oatmeal cream pies contain 812 parts per billion of glyphosate. Whole Foods, 365 organic golden round crackers. Organic, 481 parts per billion. Last week we talked about the, the glyphosate in beer, and the numbers were in like the the teens to the high 40s. 481 parts per billion in organic golden round crackers from Whole Foods. Back to nature, crispy cheddar crackers, 174 parts per billion. Uh, Cheerios? Have you ever noticed, like, what does everybody say to give to babies when they first start going to, to solid foods? Right? What is like the perfect little baby snack? Every mommy carries around a little Tupperware, a little bag, and when baby's hungry, you put a few on the tray in front of them, they start shoving them in their beak. What? Cheerios, right? 1,125 parts per billion. You're feeding your baby 1,100 parts per billion of glyphosate while their body is in full developmental mode. Honey nut Cheerios, a little bit better. Maybe the honey counteracts it. I don't know. The nuts? I don't know. 670, that still sounds pretty bad. Best you can do, tricks. Boy, that's like the crappiest cereal, but there's only nine parts per billion in there. Trisket crackers, 89 parts per billion. Ritz crackers, 270 parts per billion. Now, what I want to do is I want to pull back from this a bit. Because even 1,100 parts per billion in a Cheerio, if that was all the glyphosate that got into our bodies, it actually probably isn't that dangerous. But I want you to think of the average American now. Or do the, the next time you go to the grocery store, just stand back for a few minutes at the, where people line up and look at the lines where people have a full basket of, of groceries and look at what's in there. Now, you eat that three to, three to five times a day, seven days a week for 50 years. You're a 50-year-old man now. How much of that poison is in your body at that point? See, this is what the, 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 the farmers that have bought into this shit to defend big ag say. 
Uh, it's such a small amount. Okay, but what is the cumulative effect here? And if the newspapers are the guardians of the galaxy, why aren't they talking about this? Why is the only place you can get this information? Which, one more time, this is not like, you know, Alex Jones sent the lizard people in to find out how much glyphosate is in your crackers. This is from the federal drug FDA, right? The FDA put this information out. I, 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 I just don't understand why this is so complicated for people to understand. That, like, people, your best interest is not at heart here. And some little dinky info site is giving you the information that mainstream media won't even talk to you about. And it's not hard to figure out. It's money. It's money. Sit down and watch TV for a, a couple hours without your DVR and, and tell me how many of the commercials are drug commercials, right? And, and, and the drug companies have kind of this inverse relationship with the ag chemical companies because, gee, that makes sense. I mean, you, we do know that there is no longer a Monsanto. Monsanto has gone, but it's not gone. Gone but not forgotten and not gone, right? Monsanto was acquired by Bayer. Bayer, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world today, making massive amounts of pharmaceuticals, is also making the same chemicals that you eat in your food. And how is Fox News going to come out and tell you how bad that is when every other commercial on Fox News is a commercial for a drug company? And, oh, dear heart, switch over to CNN and see if it's not the same way. Yeah, I tell you that the lobbyists pay both sides of the aisle in Congress They fund both politicians that are running against each other, so it's always the lobbyists that are in control. That's what, that's what all the major corporations do with the media. They buy the liberal media, and they buy the conservative media, and you only get to hear what they want you to hear. Because, gee, you know, I think we did something like $25 million in advertising just for this one drug last year with your company. Be a shame if we... Uh, Had to pull our advertising now, wouldn't it? We really don't want... There you go. And that's why alternative media can be trusted more. I didn't say it can be trusted. They can be trusted more. Because if Bear says to me, Hey, Jack, if you say we're bad one more time, we won't. I don't give a shit what you do. Go piss off. I don't care. I'm not beholden to you. I'm beholden to my listeners. That's why mainstream media is dying. Because they're beholden to corporate interests and their own political bias. And they can't be honest with you because it is not possible for them to be honest with you at this point because financially it is a disaster and their cognitive bias will not allow them to be honest with you anyway. So next up, Mark in Georgia has a question for me about dogs. So we can get on to something a little more fun for a minute. Uh, it says, my wife and I have been offered a puppy from the neighbor. Are there any problems with keeping a puppy from a litter in the yard next to the mother? Our neighborhood has... Has a pit, our neighbors have a pit bull who's given birth to nine pups. They have offered us one if we like it. Coco, the mom, is a sweet girl, seems to have a good temperament. The dad's temperament is unknown to us. I would have no intention of mating the dog, assuming we were given a male. I just wonder if there would be any issues in canine offspring living next door. We are separated by a fence, but it's in clear sight to the neighbor's backyard and vice versa. Any thoughts or opinions on this would be much appreciated. If you think this needs to go over to Dr. Uh, Kelly, uh, please feel free to do so. Thanks for all you do, Mark and Georgia. I did indeed sell, send it to Dr. Kelly. We'll she, see what she comes back with. Here's what I'm going to come back with. Number one, so you have a fence separating dogs. And so to me, that means most likely 
that it's not like you have a fence here and they have a fence there. If there's a gap between the fences, this, what I'm about to say is a lot less important. But if you're talking about a fence line, dog A is on one side of the fence, dog B is on the other side of the fence. There's like chain link between you, especially all dogs, but especially pit bulls. Dogs that will generally accept another person or another animal, you know, like, oh, okay, you're cool. When there's a barrier between them and one looks like they're trying to cross it, they can get really aggressive. My Charlie's that way. Like, I've seen him snap at our cats through a door because you're on the other side of it. So it really makes sense in that case, if you have a pup, and you're going to have dogs next door, if that dog's not an aggressive dog and it's easy to do an introduction, have those dogs meet each other, play with each other, be fence-free with each other, so that they become comfortable with each other. So that, like, oh, he's not the next-door dog, that's my friend. I think that's important in general when you share a fence line with other dog owners, if it can be done. Now, sometimes it can't be safely done. You know, their dog's really aggressive. You, you adopted an older dog who's not tolerant of that type of thing, and you're not comfortable with introductions. Never introduce dogs if you're not comfortable with the process. But with a mother and a pup, it's easy. That's her pup. You know, she's more of a danger to you protecting the pup, even though she's a sweet girl, like you say, than she is to that pup. She's not going to hurt her pup. But if you just separate them long enough, it's not like human beings where it's like, that's mom. That, that becomes another dog. So I would have a lot of interaction between the mother and the pup and let them be with each other at times, even if they can just see each other from a distance, but especially if they're going to be on the fence line. I don't see this as a problem at all. I don't think that your dog being the pup of the dog next door is a problem. We've kept dogs in my past where we had uh, really great bird dogs, and we did breed them, and we sold off some of the pups, and then we fixed both sides. So... I I generally feel like new dogs have to come from somewhere, right? And if you're big, like now if you're adopt, if you're just want a dog, then I don't think it really is that key what the breed is. And there's plenty of everything. But if you're you know you want a dog to hunt grouse, you know like a Brittany Spaniel is really good for that. So we would breed dogs once or twice, and then we would fix them. And that way the, the females were not used like a farm, and they weren't overworked with their reproductive system. And males, once they're neutered, they are a lot, they're a lot better of a dog. They're a lot less aggressive. But we had points where we had pups, and we would sell off most of the pups, maybe retain one for that next generation. And those dogs hunted with their, their pups, and they, no problem. So I don't see any problem there. I think you just have to exercise general, common sense dog ownership skill set here. The other thing is, anybody that knows me knows I'm not any pit bull. Okay, my dog is a half pit bull. My dog also grabbed a car by the back fender and rocked an entire car back and forth. It looked like freaking riders rocking a car. A hundred pound dog rocked a car like three grown men with his teeth embedded into the steel and put a series of holes in the car. It looked like somebody took an ice pick and made holes. It looked more like somebody took a ten penny nail and a hammer and hammered holes in the car. Translation, all dogs can bite, all dogs can be dangerous. There is, there is very few dogs that have the power and capacity to injure like a pit bull. And I would say there are none that are stronger in that 
pound for pound. Sure, you can show me a cane corso or something. You also show me a dog that probably outweighs a pit bull by 100 pounds. That's like comparing a 120-pound man to a 220-pound man. Of course the 220-pound pound is stronger, right? Pound for pound, pit bulls, they all, again, I don't want to say pit bulls are dangerous. Dogs all can be dangerous. When you take a pit bull into your home, you take a higher level of responsibility. The dogs require discipline, training, and they absolutely require a strong human pack leader. You show me a pit bull that has aggression problems, and I will show you a dog that lives with a family that doesn't pay enough attention to it and doesn't provide the strong sense of pack that dog needs. Dogs, some dogs are messed up. Some dogs have been damaged. Some dogs have not been trained. I am not talking about that. I'm talking about dogs that have otherwise been well cared for. When you have dogs that have otherwise been well cared for, and that dog is aggressive, it is aggressive because it feels uncomfortable, because it does not feel that the pack leader is really the pack leader. It feels weakened by that. It doesn't feel like, hey, he's got this, or hey, she's got this. My human, if my human's not upset, I don't need to be upset, because they'll take out anything. My job is to support them. So if they're not amped up, I'm not amped up. You have dogs that get amped up when the owners are not amped up. That dog clearly does not believe that you really are confident and capable in your position of running the pack. And it's because it feels that way, it steps up to the front and says, well, I will do the, like, the dog needs a pack structure. It's not a cat. It doesn't live by itself. You go anywhere where stray dogs run and they, and, and they have to live on their own, what do they always end up doing? They always end up packing up in a hierarchy. The dog, the canine brain, needs this hierarchy. It has to have it. If it is absent, it will be nervous, it will be anxious. So you have to be strong, committed, kind to your dog. Kind. People that beat dogs need their ass beat because you do not know what you're doing and you do not know how to take care of a dog. You just don't. So I don't want to go too laborious on it. I'm just saying pit bull... Make sure you take the extra steps. Obedience training is great and things like that as well. Um, if you have local places where you can take the dog, socialize the dog. Get the dog in the car, out of the car, in the car, out of the car. Make it where the dog likes the car. Right? Take the dog places while it's little and it can't hurt anybody. Let it become accustomed to lots of people coming up and petting it and rubbing its belly. Right? Then when it's grown, it's not going to be like, oh, shit, here's people coming to get me. It's like the pack leader's taking me out to meet people again. And you think, like, well, a dog like that, how will it be protective? You ask people to come here about my dog and protection of the front gate. The dog knows his job. The dog can, can, the dog can tell when your heartbeat changes and you can't. When there's a problem, the dog will know before you do. When you start to know, the dog will pick up on it and know more than you do. You work on making the dog low-key and safe, and the dog will take care of the protection all by itself. It'll know. Pack leader's amped up. It's time to rock. Let's move on to another one. Actually, just real quick before we go to the next one, I, w I just found a thing in my inbox I was supposed to include with the story on glyphosate. Um, so I was wrong. Yes, Jack was wrong. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, I used to be right, but then I became wrong. So I said that they didn't generally spray corn with Roundup. They used a, another um, toxin called atrazine on corn. 
which kills broadleaf weeds but does not kill grasses, which corn is. Corn is a grass with a big seed. And uh, like they still spray the shit out of it with atrazine. But apparently, I had a ton of people write into me. Um, there's a lot of varieties of corn now that are also Roundup ready. So now they're spraying the corn with atrazine and Roundup. So that's contributing to these large parts per billion. Again, don't look for your newspaper to tell you that. So next up, there is an article out that was sent to me by John and Moore Park. John, you're awesome, man. I know I don't get but maybe 10% of what you send me uh, on the air, but that's because you're so awesome and send me so much awesome stuff. Uh, it would be the John and Moore Park show if I used everything good enough to get on the air, man. Anyway, uh, this is on Vox, and its family dollar was once considered Amazon proof. Now it's closing hundreds of stores. I have a link to the article if you want to read it yourself, but here's the general synopsis of the article. Stores like Five Below, Family Dollar, 99 Cent Store, Two Below, whatever. I don't know what the hell else is out there. But all these little discount show stores that specialize mostly in products under five bucks. Um, Dollar General, I guess, would be another one. Though a lot of these stores sell stuff that's 20, 30, 40 bucks. Um, but they were, because they sold so much volume and such small, minuscule product, you know, Vienna sausages a month from going out of uh, their expiration for, you know, 99 cents or whatever, and all the little cleaning products and old earbuds and stuff like that, basically buy up tons of surplus of shit that nobody really wanted anymore, and then they have an outlet for it, and then somebody that, you know, needs a set of earbuds for their phone, but doesn't want to spend 30, 40, 50 bucks can get them for $4, right? Uh, because it was all small dollar items that Companies like Amazon really weren't a threat to them, like they are to every other major retail outlet. Like, you know, I I recently purchased uh, of a filter for one of my uh, an air pump for filters for one of my tank setups that was thirty eight dollars. Now I could go to a local store and pay forty eight dollars for it. I can buy it for thirty eight dollars off Amazon. It'll be here in a day or two, and I don't have to leave. So what am I going to do? I'm going to buy it on Amazon. Right, unless they have a really good relationship with that retail outlet, and I'm probably still not going to buy that from them unless they're at least cost competitive. I'm not going to pay ten extra dollars for the same thing. But when it came to things like you know all this crap, basically, uh, it's really not all crap, but all this cheap stuff, right? And I don't even mean cheap in quality, just cheap in dollars. That you know Amazon can't play with that. It's just not worth it to them. Well, Amazon started going after it, and if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because. Most Amazon orders are for more than one item. So those little items as add-ons actually are really profitable business. And companies like Walmart have begun to more aggressively target kind of this niche as well. And this is putting the hurt on Family Dollar and all the little dollar stores. I mean, if you couldn't see this coming, you just didn't want to. No, they weren't Amazon-proof. Are you stupid? Because here's what it comes down to. People... Here's a couple things that people just don't want to accept about themselves. People generally don't like other people. I know people are like, I love people. No, you don't. You love people that are like you. You love people that you can have a conversation with about the things that you find important that can intelligently, at least for you at your level, communicate with you about those things. What are the odds that the person working for $9 an hour at Family Dollar is going to be that person? I'm not saying they can't be. The odds are pretty low. But more importantly, what are the odds that the 20 other people that you have to mingle with and, and kind of move in and out tight aisles with and, and try to avoid are that type of person? 
They're not very good. And what are you generally doing in your life if you're a productive person with income? Driving to work, driving home from work, or trying to find something to do to amuse yourself and enjoy yourself by, by yourself with your spouse or with your spouse and your kids. Right? That's it. Now, you, don't, you don't really like, oh, gee, I can't wait to go to Family Dollar again. So these stores have actually been living off local business from low-income people Many times from on government support. I'm not putting anybody down. I'm just telling you, like, where I live, we have really affluent uh, people in the neighborhood, and we have really poor people in the neighborhood. And when I you know, pop into a convenience store or a family dollar or something like that, I see a lot of people in there from both groups. The affluent people are in there because they, they want a certain thing that, that, ha that happens to be there, and it's convenient in and out. For instance, my wife really likes the sugar-free lemon ice drinks. And Family Dollar has them for a buck in the lemon flavor, right? That's the one she wants with the lemon flavor. And the grocery store a lot of times don't have the lemon ones. So she'll go in there and get that. But they'll, they'll go in and they'll get a thing and they leave. But I'll see a lot of the lower income in there doing their grocery shopping. They're in and out the entire food aisle like you would do it at Albertsons or Publix or Winn-Dixie, if Winn-Dixie's still around, Right? And a lot of them are walking there. I see them walking there, pushing a cart, riding a bike, whatever, and they don't have a car. And, and, and so they are going there because that is where they can spend their food stamps. Again, I'm not putting it down. I'm just telling you this is a reality. That's what's keeping those stores mostly afloat is that core business and then the niche business. So if you think about what I just said, like Amazon really can't do that well. And Amazon really isn't going to be shipping, you know, heavy liquid for a dollar a bottle. It doesn't really work really well. They'll do it, but you're going to pay so much in shipping. It's free shipping, but it's $3 a bottle instead of a dollar a bottle, right? So that's like the only thing left keeping it afloat. Well, without kind of the other incremental business, then stores like these dollar stores, it's not the business itself, the model doesn't work anymore. The store has to be in a place like I just described. Sufficient affluent to buy the niche product and sufficient impoverished to actually see it as their grocery store because it's the one they can get to. And if it doesn't meet that, that location's closing. I know that sounds like harsh, but that's just a critical business analysis of the sector. That's what's going on. So this next one comes from Justice, and there's no article with it. It just gives me the deal what's going on here. Said so Jack, what do you think about a proposal being discussed that allows student loan payments, principal and interest, to be an above-the-line deduction from income rather than interest only? The proposed loss includes a seven-year look-back and seven-year forward match to allow those who have made payments in the past to deduct those payments in future years rather than all at once. I was at a public event put on by a group here in Wisconsin, and this was just of the proposal. It's seriously being touted. Most folks love it. Some were vehemently against it. As a person with an accounting background, I can see the pluses and minuses, and I know how I would advise clients if I were in the case. But I'm wondering what you think on following your prior segment story regarding higher education industry scam. Love what you do, Justice. Okay, so basically what he's saying is right now you can deduct the interest on your student loans um, from your income tax. And he says, but he said to be an above-the-line deduction from income rather than interest only. I'm not quite sure what he's saying there because it could be a, a big change or a small change here. So right now, 
I because I don't I don't have student loan debt and I'm not an accountant so I'm not sure but I think that it it is a deduction from income not a deduction from taxes and I think it's staying that way so it's not a tax credit so I'm going to assume that's what it is so right now let's say that you made a thousand dollars in student loan payments and two hundred of that was interest you can deduct two hundred dollars from your income. Let's say that you now make $1,000 in student loan payments. You can now deduct $1,000 full from your income. The more you pay, the more you can deduct. All right? Uh, and let's say that you've been making student loan payments for seven years. Well, you can't just add it all up and deduct it this year. This year you can deduct what you pay and what you paid seven years ago. And then next year what you paid and what you paid six years ago from today or seven years ago from then until you catch up over those 14 years if you had it perfectly metered out that way. What do I think of it? <laughs> I think it doesn't really matter much to the people with the biggest problem. They don't have shit for income anyway. They're not paying any income tax. You know, these people that are running around with a cardboard sign around their neck that says they're $227 in debt with a degree in philosophy, they're working for $36,000 a year as a barista at Starbucks. That's the only job they can find. Um... They are not paying any significant income tax anyway. It won't really do anything to make them feel to, to, to make them actually be able to better pay off their student loans. Who it will work for, and who and he said, I know where he's coming from on how he would advise people. If I was a high income earning individual in this past, I would accelerate my loan payments. And I would make as much loan payment as I could as fast as possible, which is generally a good idea anyway. But, I mean, I would be rebalancing shit to do it because it's 100% deductible from my income. So if I had a degree in engineering and I had a job, let's say, at Lockheed making 100 grand a year, I am paying income tax. And let's say I owed like 80 grand on my student loans. I mean, even if I had savings saved up, it, it might make sense to pay half of that off in one year, forty grand, above the line deduction. I just reduced my income to $60,000 with that deduction alone. Okay, now I take my standard deductions and all that other shit, and okay, so there's another thing. Would this be in, ex in excess of the standard deduction? If so, I'm doing what I just said. If not, you got to make a re so that would so here's the other side of this, right? So standard deduction is like twelve thousand dollars a person now. It used to be six, roughly. They doubled doubled the standard deduction under Trump's new tax deal, which is why you got a tax cut, even though the paper told you you didn't. You know those Guardians of the Galaxy at the New York Times. They they didn't explain that to you. They doubled your standard deduction. Um, so if if it for the average person making student loan payments. If they're not a high-income earner staging it the way I just described, then they're probably never going to itemize anyway. You know, you're talking about 20-somethings, millennials, living in apartments, making 30 to 40 grand a year. They're already not paying taxes, and they're already not going to cover their standard deduction. So they're just going to take their standard deduction. So it won't do anything for people that need it. Again, back to the high-income earner. You know, 40 grand. All of a sudden, I've reduced my income to... Uh, To 60. If I own a house, well, now the salt limits on uh, state and, and, and property taxes and interest, I can still put another 10 grand on that. Okay? Well, now I've reduced my income to $50,000. 
with a little bit more, I'm not paying much in federal taxes. So it'll work well for the high-income college graduate with a solid degree who's smart enough to use it if they do it, but all it is is more hokum to try to prop up a failing educational system. The college education system, whether you want to admit this or not, despite the programming that's been done to you, please break free of it, is a Ponzi scheme. Because we now live in a society where 71% of students that graduate college, high school in the United States go on to at least attempt college. 71%. Now, before you start you know, chanting, every child deserves college, every child should get an education, and education is priceless, I just want you to, in your head, try to think of 20 people that you know on a first-name basis. 20 people that you know on a first-name basis. And then I want you to ask yourself... If 14 of those 20 are truly capable of doing university-level work, if universities maintain the standard for university-level work that they did 30 years ago. And I know that unless you, like, well, all my friends are college teachers, and, and maybe you'd be, you'd be lying there, but I'll give you that, right? You know, you, you work in, like, you, all your friends are fellow engineers, and you work as an engineer in an engineering department. Like, okay, I get that. But if you think of like your own family and people you went to school with and stuff, there's no way that 14 out of 20 people in America today have the capacity, the aptitude, and the desire to be going to college. So we have an irrational number of people pursuing university degrees because of on-demand guaranteed student loans that has fund these universities to incredibly expand in size and scope And now people are beginning to look at it and go, you pushed it too far. Because what the universities did is they just started taking more people. They lowered their admission standards, some because the government forced them. But once the government forced them to let more people in, they went, hey, hold on. Wait a minute. You mean that everybody we accept can just go get a loan and pay for our shit? Well, hell, let everybody in. Well, we don't have enough room. Hey, hey. Let's go to the bank, baby. We got you can just put projections on accounts receivable and guaranteed loans and the federal government backing it. They'll give us the loan for another wing. Throw some endowment money in there and throw some alumni money in there and get that loan and finance it. Build another wing. Now we can take more students. Hey, we need some more money. All the professors want a, 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 a raise. Well, we can only fit so many more people in that new wing. Let's just raise tuition. Well, what'll happen? Well, they can get loans. They'll pay for it. And that's what's happened. And now we have jobs for being an electrician and a plumber and a welder and a, a, you know dozens of other jobs that are skilled trades that pay eighty-five grand a year or more, and nobody to do them. And guess what? Generation Z is looking at their older brothers and sisters and cousins and going, "Huh? She has three nose rings. She owes a hundred thousand dollars, and she's making lattes." Hmm. And I can get a job as a tradesmith over here where they'll pay me during my training and in two years I can make like fifty, sixty thousand a year and project managers over there make like a hundred. I think I'm gonna do that. And we still have the old guard going, You're wasting your life, everybody calls it. but it's 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 shifting. And this is just another thing to try to make it look palatable to take on all this debt. And what universities need to do, uh, let me put it this way, the hell with what they need to do. What the universities that will survive and thrive will do going forward 
two different two different versions. One, you will always have the prestigious, high level universities that rich people send their kids to because that's where rich kids go. You'll have that. The rest of them, the ones that will survive, what's coming, will figure out how to make their education scalable, cheap, better, faster, and streamlined. And if they don't do that, you're going to read an article in the near future that's going to say, once thought immune, once thought immune to the changing education space, mid-level universities begin to feel the pinch, just like Family Dollar from Amazon. Because it's pattern recognition, it's all the same things, folks. You can't change the laws of business, and you can't change the laws of economics. Those are actual laws. They're not written by men. They're laws like the law of gravity. You drop shit, it falls. Okay? And you can, you can, you can try to legislate those types of natural laws away. Sooner or later, they will always present themselves for what they are, the facts. Next up, um, Chris says, Jack, with all the attacks on those wearing MAGA hats, do you think it's just a matter of time before someone gets seriously hurt or killed in the midst of an altercation? What else do you think we can expect from either side during such altercations? I don't really follow the news, as I think a lot of it is attention-grabbing bullshit. Good for you. But I can't keep ignoring the public outbursts and violence going on regarding Trump. Okay, um, so this is an example of why people don't trust the media anymore. Because there's only two types of people on this issue, on this the MAGA hat thing. There's people that think, whether they agree with it or not, that you do not attack somebody, you do not confront somebody, you do not yell at somebody, you do not interfere with somebody for wearing a hat. You just don't do it. Especially a hat that says, make America great again. That's what it says. Then there are people that believe it's the new KKK hood, Because they're delusional and they hate Trump. So it's every horrible thing. He's like Hitler uh, Hitler with super Nazi injections and racist and misogynist, everything else. So you can, you can attack those people and it's okay. It's only two types of people. There's plenty of people that don't agree with Trump. But still think like, you don't go do this. You don't confront people over this. But the media has given them a pass. Because the media is in the tank for the socialist agenda. I'm not even saying liberal anymore. Full-on socialist communism, the media's in the tank for it. Period. Which is why people don't trust them anymore, and they shouldn't. So, it, I, I'm not trying to stir anything up. I'm just pointing a, 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 an example of hypocrisy here. If five, six years ago, a person walking down the street was wearing a hat that said hope and change with the Obama logo on it. And somebody didn't even hurt them. They just accosted them verbally and said, that hat is racist because it's, you're taking away from other people and made some sort of a case for that, whether it was valid or invalid, doesn't even matter. It would have been on every news station. They would have decried the individual as racist, even if they were a, a black transsexual. They must be racist against Obama for being black. And it's a hate crime, and something needs to be done. And when something happens like this to a person wearing a MAGA hat, the general response by mainstream media is, meh, eh, eh. Oh, it's really being pushed a bit. We've got to talk about it a little bit, and then we'll just go on to a, you know, a, a drug commercial and talk about how Donald Trump uh, put Russian salad dressing on his salad, so clearly that proves he colluded with Russia. And we'll just kind of let it go away and disappear. Any assertion 
that the conservatives of this country are in generally violent people has been completely disproven by this. I just feel right now, from just a morality standpoint, that if someone was walking down the street wearing a MAGA hat, and somebody came up and got in their face and started screaming at them about it, and that person knocked the living shit out of the person verbally assaulting them, kicked their ass to the point where they needed med- they're not dead or anything, but kicked their ass to the point where they needed medical treatment, the person doing it would be morally justified. They would absolutely be morally justified doing it. And they haven't. Conservatives as a whole, as a group in this country, have exhibited an incredible amount of restraint on the use of violence and force during this time. This is not saying Trump is right. I'm talking about the people in general. And most of the violence that we've seen politically here has been by the left. It's the left that are throwing bottles. It's the left that burnt down cities after the election. It is the left that is punching people in the face on college campuses for wearing a shirt that says they're a conservative. It is the left going after people over a red effing hat. And again, conservatives have been very restrained. I consider myself a restrained person. I know sometimes I kind of blow up on the air. Part of that is legitimate anger. Most of it is because it's my job to entertain you and make you think and to wake you up. All right. I am on some level an actor. I'm an act. I'm, a, I'm an actual reality actor. Okay. Um, I'm like fake reality television. So, with all that being said, you can push me too far. You can push me too far. You can push me to a point where I will totally cave your head in on the wall behind you. I will grab you by your face, I will lift you off to your ground, and I will crack your head like a damn coconut if you push me far enough, if I feel threatened enough. Most of the concealed carry holders in this country are also conservatives, which is one reason I think disproportionately youths have been targeted with this. Teenagers and stuff like that, less likely to be carrying. There's going to come to a point where this is going to happen. Guy's going to be walking down the street rocking his MAGA hat. Might even be a MAGA hat. Pro-Trump, pro-Republican, pro-anything right. He's going to be confronted by a group of people who think because there's more of them than there are of him that they can get away with it. He's going to tell them, and I'm going to say the word that I usually censor myself from on the show, starts with F, ends with the sound like truck. If you don't want it, skip ahead 30 seconds. He's going to, because this is what's going to happen. I've got to be real with this. He's going to say, go fuck yourselves. Get the fuck out of my face. Go fuck off elsewhere. I'm minding my own business. Get out of here. They're going to get violent with him, and he's going to fucking shoot somebody. That is what is going to happen sooner or later, and the media wants it to happen. They want it to happen. It's literally like there's a little tiny ember burning there, and they're fanning it, and they're getting the gas ready. Like, if we throw the gas on now... It'll actually put the ember out. Keep it going. Somebody go get some tinder. Let's get this thing going. Like, they want that to happen. It is going to happen. It's either going to be that, or they're going to mess with some guy that doesn't look like much. You know, he's 170, 180 pounds, but he lives in an MMA gym, and he is going to totally beat the living piss out of the people assaulting him. It is not going to be one shot and the guy goes down. It's going to be legs wrapped around to the head, grabbing the other guy, snapping him over, breaking fucking arms. That's what's going to happen. 
That is, this is where this is going to lead. Because you can't keep coming after people for expressing their opinions with violence without sooner or later picking the wrong effing person. And when they do, they're going to make it like it's all Donald Trump's fault. Some guy's going to be assaulted by like 12 people, 12 on one. He's going to put holes in like half of them while the other half run away. And they're going to call it a hate crime on the guy defending himself against 12 people that were all bigger than him. That's, that's where this is going to go. And the media is complete and total shit. Okay? This is the danger when the media in a free nation refuses to do its job. This is why nobody trusts you anymore. Because anybody with an IQ with three freaking digits in it can figure out what you're doing. That's why they don't trust you. And it's literally, they're begging for a race war or a civil war. They're begging for it. And I, I've said this before, and I don't really want to take either side of their dichotomy, but I also am a realist and I deal in facts. Be careful what you wish for. Because while the left tends more toward violence... The right is a lot better at it. And a lot of the people that the liberal, socialist, communist idiots think are on their side that will do their bidding, i.e. law enforcement and military, a shitload of these people will not. They will not do your bidding. If you push this, you have literally millions of gun owners, millions of us, who will defend ourselves with trillions of rounds of ammunition, and more than half of your supposed enforcers will just turn around, walk over, and stand next to us. That's, and, and that's what the media wants. And that powder keg could erupt over something like this. One of the best things that came out of the Jussie, whatever the hell his name is, Smollett, I never heard of this guy until that shit happened, a fake abduction where he hired two Nigerians to put a rope around his neck, dump bleach on him, and say this is MAGA country, which is just so stupid. Like, you have to be an idiot to think that that was staging a, you know, a good attack. A civil rights leader, black guy, comes out and says, this is atrocious. Not that, this is after it came out that Mollet staged the whole thing. It's disgusting, it's despicable, and the man should go to prison because the type of thing he did could have started a race war. Yeah, and that's why the media jumped all over it. They are so desperate to get rid of Donald Trump, as they have been so desperate to get rid of almost every Republican president in the last 50 years. I mean, there was talk of impeaching Bush. There was talk of impeaching uh, Bush Sr. There was talk of impeaching Reagan. There was definitely talk of impeaching Nixon. There was actually grounds for that. But, I mean, the media for the last 50 years has always just lost their minds over Republicans. Trump is like an extreme example. And they don't know what to do about it. And they never thought it could happen. So they've lost their minds. But in the end, the media is scum. That's where you're at now. If you are in the mainstream media, and at the level where you are making decisions about what type of stories to run and how to angle them, you are complete and total scum. Because sooner or later, people are going to die because you refuse to do your effing job. That's where this is going to lead. Let's go to something else where I have a freaking aneurysm. Gun question. 
Ethan says, Jack, is the registration status of a firearm an important consideration when it comes to EDC? Details, my state of Oklahoma just passed permitless carry. Starting next November, law-abiding non-fellows will be able to open carry or conceal carry without a permit. I support this plan to carry, but nearly all my sidearms are heirlooms or gifts from relatives. I only own a single pistol that is legally mine, a Beretta 92FS. As you know, there are lots of other pistols that would make better EDCs than a 92FS. Does it make a huge difference from a legal standpoint if I carry a hand-me-down, uh, or is it enough of a concern to be pragmatic and only carry my legal sidearm? In this case, I would rather ask for permission than forgiveness, and I don't wish to argue that point with the side of the road with a peace officer. Thanks. Okay, here's the good news, Ethan. I, am, I, I cannot speak for all states. There are states that have passed individual gun registration requirements at the state level. There is no federal gun registration at all right now. There is, it does not exist. It is a figment in the minds of people's imaginations. Because when we go buy a gun, we fill out a form. On that form, we put down our name and everything, and they do an instant background check. That information does not go to the federal government. At least it's not supposed to. I'm not saying there's some backdoor list somewhere. All right, because I believe I don't trust the government for shit. But the way that works is the store owner then keeps that registration. It's not a registration, that, that form, and they keep it on file. If that gun ever turns up anywhere, they can see where it was sold, and they can go request that form, and they can find out who bought it. It's not really a registration, though, because it does not require new registration for that gun to transfer ownership. Again, people in other states, you may need to go do the paperwork to be compliant in your state. I don't know. Oklahoma has no such laws. Texas has no such laws. Let's say I go buy a gun. If you are a Texas resident and I want to sell you my gun and I say, you say, well, Jack, how much is that gun? Well, I paid 500 bucks for it. You know, I used it for a while and it's worn a little bit. I'll, I'll take 450 for it. You give me 450, I give you my gun. That's it. It's your gun. You legally own it. Now, we may choose to do some sort of private paperwork so that if, let's say, that gun gets stolen from you, the guy that steals it goes out and shoots somebody, and when the, guy, the, the, the law enforcement starts doing this investigation, it goes to the store, it'll find, well, Mr. Spearco owned that gun. They're going to come to me, and they're going to say, what happened to your gun? And I'm going to say, well, I, I sold it to Ethan. And they're going to go to you and say, well, what happened? where's this gun? Did, did you actually buy this from Mr. Spearco? And this is why it does make sense on a sale especially, to do a hand receipt. To do a simple hand receipt with your signature. I sold one gun for X dollars to Ethan, blah, blah, blah. Jack Spearco. We sign both. You keep a copy, I keep a copy. That makes sense to do. You don't have to file it. All you have to do is like, because if somebody shows up and you're like, hey, I sold this guy a gun. Well, did you? Well, here's his signature. He said he bought it from me. So when he's like, I don't know what he's talking about. And they're like, oh, no, no. You bought the gun. This is your signature, this is the date, this lines up, and now it's that person's problem. They have to now account for where that gun went. But unless that gun is reported stolen, it could be 20 people from divorced from there at that point. There could be no paper trail all the way to that point. That gun is not illegal. It's not registered to the first person. That's just where the paperwork that's available to law enforcement begins on tracking down its chain of custody. So there is no issue here, especially with inherited gifts from family, etc. One thing you do need to be mindful of, though, is interstate transfers are not legal. And that's something that can come back to bite you 
if you don't run it through an FFL. Okay? And that's why you probably should. I'm not a lawyer, so how that pertains to inheritance, I am not aware of. But if your uncle in, you know, Tennessee gives you a shotgun, it probably makes sense to go to a, a, a go to a shop and pay the guy the 20 bucks to run that transfer. It's not a registration, it's a transfer of ownership. If your uncle lives in Tennessee and he's a Tennessee resident and you live in Tennessee and he's a Tennessee resident, it's a clean transfer. Again, and I, I shouldn't even speak for Tennessee. I'm not 100% sure. I think that's the case in Tennessee. Right now, there is, and they're calling it bipartisan with like two rhino Republicans voting for it, um, a, a proposal in the federal government to eliminate this type of transfer of firearms. What it would do is it would require that type of a registration transfer, not a registration, I use the word, a transfer of ownership paperwork trail done by an FFL. So I want to give you a gun, you want my gun. Whether I'm selling it to you or giving it to you, we would go down to a local gun shop and say we'd like to transfer the, the ownership of this firearm to this person, and they're going to charge you somewhere between $15 and $25. You're going to fill out a form. They're going to pick up a phone. They're going to call it in. It's going to come back that you're not a felon and that you're okay to buy, and they're going to take that form and put it in their case. And technically, they became the interim owner of that firearm. That's how that would work if that passed, if it goes the way that it's current, and that would change what I just said. However, there's a lot of guns that are out today that are old enough that they predate the existence of that. There is no paperwork on them. You know, they were bought by your grandfather from the Sears catalog in 1935. And if that gun stayed in the family and was never sold through a store, there is no paperwork on that gun. Now, you can still take the serial number and actually figure out where the gun came from. You can't necessarily figure out who bought it. Sears doesn't have a list of all the people they sold double-barrel shotguns to in 1934 out of their catalog. So there's that too. But when you say, should I only carry my legal sidearm, all your guns, assuming they were rightfully acquired in the first place, you are not a felon, and they were transferred to you by residents of the same state, are legal, and you would need a... And I'm, this is where I've been... I was actually thinking this morning, it might be a good idea to add a lawyer to the expert counsel. Um, I do not know how that would... You know, be different if at all. Your uncle in Nashville dies, bequeaths in his will his gun collection to you in Oklahoma. You take possession of it. Does that require a transfer? I don't know to be legal with interstate transfer as it was inheritance versus sale. My instinct is it would require transfer when you go from one resident of one state to another. That's my understanding. All right, so... Let's go ahead and try another one. Um, gun question again. Actually, a gun point again. I just thought this was really cool. Uh, we were talking recently about starting kids with guns. And John wrote me and said, The rifle I started my kiddo, who is a girl out with, is a Ruger American Rimfire. It's basically a bolt-action Ruger 1022 with adjustable stocks for length of pull and raised cheek peaks for optics. Uh, magazines are interchangeable, 10-rounders and 25-rounders from the 10-22 platform. A <coughs> couple of things to note if you're interested. Standard model comes with a 22-inch barrel and standard lengths of pull inserts. Compact model, 18-inch barrel and compact youth length of pull inserts. 
I purchased the standard model and bought the compact length of pull uh, insert set extra because I wanted the best of both worlds, a 22-inch barrel and a shorter length of pull inserts. Shorter inserts give a 12.5-inch length of pull, standards 13 and 3 quarters. Note 870 uses 13 inches, so it's even shorter than that for small shooters. And I love shooting the thing myself, fun little gunman, uh, the Ruger American Bolt Action Rifles. I, I really should have mentioned the Ruger American series because their, you know, their centerfire rifles and stuff like that are great too. And they're great, like mountain rifles, hunting rifles, etc. as you move up to centerfire. Uh, that's a great suggestion. I really like trying to figure out some way, any way, that that first gun that goes to a kid can actually be used for their entire life. So I really like that. So, John, thanks for sending that in. I just wanted to throw that out for you guys today. Um, final one today. Um, what are some no-maintenance perennial plants to grow for making green smoothies? Background, like many of us, I try to eat better. I'm not a big greens eater, uh, and I'm trying to do some better eating via smoothies, which I actually like. It's even more satisfying to pick some greens from your own garden. I'm making the fence line of my backyard a place where I grow very low-maintenance plants like berries, lemon balm, and mint. This is all a good start, but I need to keep going. Any ideas on what a prepper can grow for this use? Something with good vitamins, but at the same time, there's no maintenance, so a person can just go pick what's ready. Plus, grows back year after year. I hope this is not a tall order. Thanks for all you do, Sean, in Pittsburgh. Uh, Sean, um, it's not easy to do. There are some perennial plants that do what you're asking. Uh, good King Henry would be one, and there's some others. But most of those type of perennials, as far as greens, the, the downside, if there, you want to put it that way, is You can only take so much from them during the time that they really make a good green harvest, and then you kind of have to let them go through the rest of the year. They, they're not really harvestable through the whole season, and so they don't probably make the best choice. A couple things that spring to mind, one that I think would work and one that I know would work. They're both technically annuals, especially in your climate, but very easy to start again next year. The first is sweet potatoes. Most people, when they think of sweet potato, they think of that horrible orange sugary mess that people make at Thanksgiving that they've already sweetened with sugar and molasses and everything else, and then they have the audacity to cover with marshmallows. Uh, that, of course, is the root of the sweet potato plant, which can actually be a really good crop if we don't do that horrible nastiness to it. But what most people don't know, at least in my finding over the years, is that the greens of sweet potatoes are completely edible. They are my go-to summer green in my climate because I have such a hard time growing lettuces and spinaches and cilantros and stuff like that. So I grow lots and lots of sweet potatoes. I leave a lot of the tubers in the ground and don't even harvest them. In fact, most of them I leave in the ground, probably half of what I leave in the ground overwinters and grows back next year and becomes perennial for me. It probably won't happen for you, but you could get one organic sweet potato Make a whole buttload of slips, which is basically you put the, you can look it up. I don't want to try to explain it and make the show go long. But basically, you put the sweet potato in water and it starts putting shoots up and you, you pull them off. They, you call it slip them off. You just kind of push them off, stick them in a cup of water and they root. Plant them into some place with decent, uh, moisture and fertility and they grow like crazy through your summer. And I go out and I just pick a bunch of them, strip all the leaves off of the, uh, off the, the stem, because the stem is really woody, and I would advise that even for your smoothies. And I saute them. Like, they go in butter and garlic, you know, for like 10 seconds till they wilt down like spinach, and they taste just like spinach. 
So since they taste just like spinach, I think they would kind of do the same thing that spinach would do in your smoothies. So I would give that a shot. And right now is a good time to, if you don't want to make your own slips, order slips. And then you can probably plant, you know, pull up one of your two, one or two or two, two or three of your tubers at the end of the season. Put them in a bucket full of moist soil with some compost on top of it and some mulch on top of it, and keep it like since you live in Pennsylvania, like if you have a basement or something down in a cold, cold basement, someplace where it's going to be cold but not freeze solid, like a garage. And you could probably not even make slips; just stick them in the ground next year, and they'll grow. So you would have this endless supply of slips that way. The other thing would be a weed, which is also an annual, but it self reseeds, and since it self reseeds, it will come back year after year after year, and it's lamb's quarters. It's probably one of the best greens you can do for this. And the nice thing about lamb's quarters, I talked about them recently. I love in the spring when all my wild lamb's quarters come up, I let the plants get about 8 to 10 inches high, and I cut the whole plant off at the bottom, chop it up, and saute it or make it in soups or what have you, pull the young leaves off, throw them in salads. They look really cool. Um, and when they get bigger, the plants do get kind of a mealy taste to the greens and what have you. But... If you put them in a smoothie, it wouldn't matter. You could harvest them year-round. The other thing is they get really, really big. Lamb's quarters get huge. There's no reason you couldn't go out with like a, a pair of pruners or a machete or a knife, cut a shitload of branches off of your lamb's quarters late in the season, tie a string around them, hang them up a place where they're not going to get rained on, let them dehydrate, and then just take all those leaves and just crumble them into a big jar, and you have dried greens for your smoothies. No cost, no effort absolutely will come back every year. I'm kind of brain-locked right now. I've, I've been dealing with some kind of crud all last week. My voice was really strained. Today I actually have to do two shows instead of one because I'm taking my, my grandson to see tigers and lions and cougars at a uh, like a sanctuary on, uh, on Thursday. So I'm doing two shows today. So I, I want to kind of pull back here, take a break, and I don't want to go much longer. So I'm not going to go into a bunch of other plants. So can you guys help me? Can you guys tell me, can you think of plants that would work really well for Sean in Pittsburgh uh, to grow like this for his greens, for his smoothies? If so, email me or comment on the blog, and I will try to get them on a future episode. With that, if you uh, like this show and the work that we do, do consider becoming a member of our site today by becoming a supporting member of the Member Support Brigade, also known as the MSB. You will get discounts to about 80 different companies. It is almost inconceivable if you like the type of stuff we talk about. You can't find four or five or six. Uh, you're going to buy something like that anyway uh, over you know over a year. Use those discounts and not get your money back. So you think about it this way. You help support me. I get you discounts. You get your money back. You get content. I get to make content. You get your money back. I hear from people all the time, at least a few a month, that say, hey, last year I made $150 by being a member. You know, so like that's, that's awesome. That's what I tried to build. So do consider becoming a member. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members to learn more. And then the totally painless way that you can help support the survival podcast. I mean, like literally no pain whatsoever, uh, no additional cost whatsoever. Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. When you're going to buy some online, you can see the deals of the day at Amazon. You can see all the items that I've reviewed. You can do whatever you want there. But if you start there, you help support us. Um, and then you can see my daily reviews as well. And remember, if it's there, I own it. I spent my money on it. I used it. 
I liked it, and I said, if I needed this again, I would buy this thing again, or I will not recommend it to you. That is the, my that is my quality level of standard to put an item on TSPAS. Today's item is by one of my favorite electronics company called Anker, A-N-K-E-R. It's a 24-watt dual USB car charger. I'm not going to say a lot about it because it's pretty simple. You plug it into a cigarette lighter. It gives you two USB ports to charge your devices. Uh, the lower port at 2.4 amps is pretty fast, but the higher charging one's 4.8 amps. It is incredibly fast. It's $10. bucks. Yes, I know. You can buy something that looks just like this for like $3.99 in a little bu bucket rate at checkout at an electronics store. I know. Pick this up and just hold the two in your hand. And you'll just throw the other one back in the bucket and say, no, I'm sticking with this. The quality is there 100%, and it is really the best device I've found for this type of charging. I also recommend pairing it with the Astro E7, which is the backup power pack that I recommend. But this is why I really recommend you have something like this in your vehicles. These are my rules for your cell phone. Number one, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you are home, you plug it in. When you're in your car, you plug it in. Rule two, have multiple ways to charge your phone, especially in your vehicle. Rule three, you don't let your cell phone go dead. In fact, you keep it fully charged all the time. When you're home, you plug it in. When you're in your car, you plug it in. Right? If you follow rules one, two, and three, and rule one and three, yes, are the same, you don't have to worry about this. So get if you don't have a device like this, this is the one to get. If you are tired of like pulling it out and it falls apart or it doesn't work or it breaks and sometimes it charges, something, get this, you'll never have a problem. And I'll tell you why I love Anchor. Not because they never make a mistake. No company can say they never make a mistake. I love Anchor because Anchor always, always, always stands by their shit. I've had one Anchor product in like eight years that I had a problem with. I contacted them through Amazon's back end. They said, just keep it. We'll send you another one. You shouldn't have had to deal with a problem in the first place. That's the kind of company I like to recommend. And I love to recommend you know, using Amazon. Um, you can think what you want about them, but my thing with Amazon is you buy something, even if I loved it and you didn't, you just return it. They even pay for it to be shipped back to them. So, yeah, I, I really recommend you shop at T-Spaz, and I really recommend today's item of the day. That brings us to our song of the day. Um, this is actually, I've always loved this song. Uh, it's written by George Harrison, one of the Beatles, and it's the song All Those Years Ago. And if you, if I say that, and you're like, I've never heard this song, unless you're like 12, when you hear it play, you're going to be, oh, that song. And, and, and because he's got kind of that unique voice, there's actually points of the song, like if you're not paying attention, you might not even understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. Uh, but if you listen, he's very easy to understand. But what a lot of people don't know about this song, this song was written by George for John Lennon. This is kind of a tribute to John Lennon after John was, was killed. And uh, the original version of the song was actually written for Ringo. Ringo and George, when, when the Beatles broke up, it kind of was like a bifurcation, like two and two. But like George was the kind of guy that was tried to be friendly with everybody. Um, McCartney was the one with the huge blowout. Uh But George was really close to Ringo, even after the breakup. And he had written this song, and he was kind of working on it. And then when John was killed, he completely reworked it and wrote it for John. With that in mind, instead of me reading lyrics to you all today, again, trying to say my voice a little bit more for a heavy voice week, um, listen to the words. 
They may speak to you a little bit differently now that you know that's how the song was written in the first place. And, man, all four of those guys were incredibly talented and put out great music both as a group and on their own. With that, it's been Jack Spierko kicking off the week for you on a Monday, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Someone who offends